Hello and welcome to No Mean City, a podcast all about the legendary Scottish detective series, Taggart. I'm Ian. And I'm Stephen. And on today's show, we are taking a look at the second series of Taggart from 1986. That's two stories, Knife Edge and Death Call. So first up is Knife Edge, which aired between February the 24th and the 10th of March 1986, written by Glenn Chandler, of course, directed by Haldane Duncan, a brilliant veteran director, directed everything from uh, Wheel of Fortune with Nicky Campbell through to Take the High Road, loads of dramas, and just, you know, even the, I think he did one of the Hogman A shows on XTV, which is you know, it's about as grab bag as you can get of a career. He was the go-to director for XTV at that point, yeah. Very much so. I ended up doing a whole ton of Emmerdale as well in like his peak era in the, the late 90s. So he was kind of a really busy guy, even right towards the end of his career. This is probably one of the ones, the first kind of big breakthrough tagger, because mm. a lot of people remember this one. And it had an amazing cast, which I think helps uh, with that. So the cast for this, and we're, we're obviously going to speak about Alex Norton quite a lot, who, for, for obvious reasons, Stephen. Um, I, I won't give it away. Oh, uh, tell, we'll tell by the end. So, but the cast for this is, I mean, we're we're reaching that point as we've talked about of like Scottish famous, where everyone who is either a young up and coming actor coming out mm. of RSAMD or a well known household name is in this and the next story. So, from this, you have Alex Norton, of course, who would go on to be the star of Tiger for a good ten years later on in the decade. You have Dave Anderson. Uh, to complete the City Lights reunion, we also have two other members of the City Lights cast, Jan Wilson and Ian McCall. Mm. Ian McCall pops up as a bouncer in the background in a whole bunch of shots. And Jan Wilson, who's Willie Melville's mum, is uh, the first victim, I suppose, of Kristen uh, Rodska's character, Alex Dewar. You also have in there a very young Ian Glenn, um, who people will know from lots and lots of things, probably most famously these days from Game of Thrones. And also, and I'd forgotten this until I started watching it, Siobhan Redmond comes mm. up in it as well, playing a journalist for the Sunday Herald 14 years before the Sunday Herald was founded. Yeah. When when she popped up, I thought, right, she has to play a much bigger... No, barely in it. And then there's Claire Nielsen, who is just in so much throughout her career... And I thought she was, I mean, she's in it so much as well. But again, uh, okay. But I kept trying to remember, what is it I know her from? Of course she was in Scotch and Ryan. Everything in the 80s that I think Ricky Fulton did. I mean, she is a proper Scottish legend. And I just, I'd forgotten she was even in this episode. We have reached that point now where Tiger is is like a magnet drawing in all the Scottish talent. But obviously the big headline act from from this is is Alex Norton, who is, um, as we said, we would go on to be in Tiger in a very different way later on. But again, in a really memorable role here. I mean, he absolutely steals it. He is phenomenal in it. And from the very first moment, I... I can't remember an opening to a show that's as bleak as a man feeding his pigeons, climbing out over a body in a bathtub, and then and almost doing it nonchalantly, like, oh, it's just yeah. there. It's a really long, cold open as well. It's about five minutes it takes to get. It follows them all the way through it in the, in the dove cot and everything, and you get the body reveal. It is a long, long, cold open to get there. 
but it packs a punch. Even what what how thirty something years later, it still hits you like wow! Didn't see that coming. So synopsis for people uh, who may not have watched this yet uh, or need their memory jogged. Uh, the discovery of a severed arm on the side of a busy motorway, followed by the discovery of a severed leg by a fisherman, leads D.S. Livingston to investigate a murder in which the murderer is disposing of his victims piece by piece. Meanwhile, DCI Tiger is facing up to his demons at home, questioning whether his marriage is going to last. And So I read that description and thought, yeah, no, not entirely. This plot is crazy. This plot is absolutely mental. And I loved it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's a real roller coaster ride of location and red herring and characters. It goes so many different directions at any one time. It's, but it, one thing I will say, I know last time when we were talking about with Murder and Season and Dead Ringer, I think we were kind of wondering how cohesive it was sometimes. Yeah. This completely, everything gels, everything hits. And God, I'm like, at the end of it, you're kind of like, I need a cigarette after that. It's just exhausting. I think I agree up until the last 10 minutes when I just, what, what, where are we here? What, 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 who is that? And I, I, I mean, I loved watching it, but I don't, I don't think, again, I've come back to, I don't think anyone has ever guessed the killer on the first watching. I cannot no. imagine they have. I don't think the plot gives you that information to get there but once you know it you can go oh yeah okay it all holds together but no way is anyone guessing the how this is going absolutely refuse to believe it um and i think probably when you do watch it alex norton has to be the killer and that's the brilliant thing about this he you see him disposing of the body parts he's a butcher he's unstable there's, there's everything points to this is almost like an episode of Columbo. We know who it is. We're watching it to find out how did they discover it. And no, no, he's not the killer. Well, he he kind of is. It's it's uh, well, yeah. It, that's the I think that's the, the I think that's you're right. People won't get it, but I think part of that is because there's three killers, which is is kind of this very. And I, I think it does. I think it does kind of pay off. And I think maybe this is one of those instances where having watched it all in one go as like the, the omnibus. That really helps because you genuinely, I think episodically I would have probably got lost with this, but watch it in one go, you can see where the kind of the threads of the story are going from the start with the guy who's working offshore and him coming back and how he gets into the connections between the various things and how it all links together. There's a lot of coincidence mm. between how people meet, yes. but that coincidence then brings people into an orbit that they wouldn't have had before. And then that, that makes, I think, the resolution of it all possible. Right. Okay, I'm going to get into this early. So, uh, I mean, one of the plot threads is a sleazy hypnotherapist. And he ends up having a brief weekend away with Jan Wilson. Uh, and they meet at what has to be the strangest nightclub ever put to TV. Why is everyone in the 40s? What is going on in this, in this disco? So the location is the legendary Panama Jacks in Glasgow. Yeah. In, in, in the show, it's dressed up as Havana Joes. Uh, like the, the least amount of set dressing away they could get away with. It's like, <laughs> stick, stick a name over it, we'll keep all the other... It's fine, no one will notice. But it, yeah, it's a weird, it's got a live band. It does seem to be kind of singles over 40s night all the time. The police all go there as well. Yeah. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's a very odd... I, I'm slightly too young to have gone to Panama Jacks. I, I never had that rite of passage. I, if anyone who listened to went to it can tell us, was it like that for real? I'd be thrilled. 
Well, I, I did look at it for a while thinking that has to be Cleopatra's. It has to, and it clearly is not Cleopatra's. And if, I mean, Cleopatra's must have been around. Why did they not go there? But they may, I mean, they do use that that location as much as they possibly can. They really do. I, I, I won't lie. At first, because it's all on VT, I thought it was a set. Yes. Because we're still in that era of, of film for location and VT for the studio. And all the stuff is VT. I thought, have they built like this really tacky nightclub at Cow Gardens? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I was like, well, why no? That actually really is a venue. Wow. Okay. I completely agree. I watched it thinking, yeah, it doesn't even look real. I, I, I honestly <laughs> thought that looked totally fake. Oh, oh, check, check location. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I, I wish I'd got to go there. I, I actually think I'd love that place. It would have been great fun. Um, but yeah, just watch that. Please, if anyone out there has ever been there, tell us what it was like. I want it to have been like that. Yeah, I was just thinking, like when they made um, 24 Party People um, here in Manchester, they, they recreated the Hacienda so they could film mm. those final scenes and effectively gave the, the Hacienda its final night that it never really got in, in real life. We need to do that in Glasgow. We need to have a final night of Panama Jacks. <laughs> Just so we can recreate the nightclub to get that experience and see what it was really like. Well, I mean, it's it's not there anymore, is it? It's flats no, now. No, it's flats, yeah. yeah. I'd love to find, I cannot find out where the, the scene, oh, the creepy, creepy scene with the Hells Angels was filmed. I cannot figure out where that is. But my God, is it terrifying. How that is a hell of a location, but also that scene is terrifying. It's it's pretty well done, and yeah, there's a real sense of danger to Peter, like when he's getting his car. The thing it kind of reminded me of, though, was the if you've ever seen it, the episode of Quincy, when Quincy's facing off against the punk rockers. I have seen that episode. I have seen that episode. Yes, it's it's kind of like that. Although Jim facing them down is magnificent. I mean, just this. Yeah, it's that old thing of small psychos are the best. He he just the absolute him wandering through and. Like they obviously all go, we're not getting involved in this one. That's right. The big tall posh one, we'll have him, but not not the wee one. He's he's too dangerous. And he gets a great line as well when the leader of the Hells Angels spits on his very shoes. What's this? The boy scout jamboree. The last person that did that near me wore his balls hate for earrings. I mean, once again, some absolute fantastic lines. But yeah, I'd forgotten that scene until that scene came up and it all came back. The fear of dread that that scene was coming up, I just, oh, oh, scary, scary stuff. And it's, again, it comes into that red herring thing because it doesn't go anywhere. They're set up as this kind of thing. There's, there's something weird going on and they've been linked with digging up bodies and kind of weird rituals. So it's set up as this this kind of thing. And Because you only really get a couple of scenes with them. Is the, when Peter gets overtaken and then the big confrontation. But they get referenced a bunch of times after that. So you're never quite sure, is this going to be another kind of classic tagger? Episode three, they're suddenly going to appear and be essential to the plot. But apart from their, their leader getting hauled in for questioning... They're, they're not seen again, and, and it turns out to be, again, a massive red herring to the whole story. Yeah, I thought later on when uh, the butcher's on the bridge and they go by him as he's disposing, I thought, ah, that's what they're going to do. Mm. They're going to call the police in or they're going to say we've seen him again. And that doesn't happen either. I, I don't no. think, I was surprised that didn't happen. But, I mean, there's lots of elements to this episode that dates it, but that to me, yeah, that's, 
this is definitely late seventies hangover, early eighties stuff. So the actual murder plot itself, which we're kind of skirted around, even by Tiger Stands, this is a really gruesome murder. Someone's killed and then dismembered. Yeah, literally dismembered. And there's this kind of constant air. I was, I won't lie, and I think this is just watching lots of horror films. I was constantly expecting some revelation that bits of the body had been put in the meat at the, the butchers. It just had that. Even though I knew it wasn't coming, it has that air of horrible Fargo-style disposal of of the corpse is going to be going that way. You know they want you to think that. They're not going to allude to it hard because they would definitely get in trouble, but they want you to think that. And I totally bought it. I won't lie. I, I totally bought it. It's, it's such a good location for a, a killer because you have that, you know, he's, he's someone who's he's obviously practicing butchery and all this kind of stuff, but it, it, it just adds that extra dimension of, oof, when you see him like putting the blood in for the black puddings and, and stuff, I mean, by God, you know, if anything's ever going to turn me vegetarian, it's large <laughs> chunks of this episode. It's, it's, it's Glaswegian cuisine, but probably even more. <laughs> <laughs> very true, yeah, very true. But the, the actual setup is really interesting, where it's the the kids of one of the characters, the, the son of one of the characters who died, and his his friend died, and that was Ian Glenn's girlfriend. Yeah. And then they conspired together to kill the person who sold him the drugs that caused the car crash that they died in. Was the hypnotist involved? I don't. No, think he just happened to be the the, the landlord the of of Ian so, Glenn's character. So that's where the big coincidence comes. Yeah. So Alex Norton's daughter, and the reason why his wife has left is because his daughter bought drugs from a relief teacher, who mm-hmm. then got off because it was not proven. So yeah. they took the law into their own hands. So that was Ian Glenn's girlfriend. Yeah, so they're connected via the couple. Their daughter died in a motorbike crash because of drugs. Yeah, so they were there was an accident when when they were on drugs and there was kind of no, as you said, there was no no eventual prosecution. The case was heard. They sat through the case, apparently. It's mentioned in the, in the story that they'd sat in the gallery and seen it. And, and followed that's how it. they all met. Yeah, so um, Jan Wilson's character, who is this fling, the hypnotist, his lodger, is in the band. He's the drummer in the band that plays right. at the nightclub. He's also the boyfriend of one of the victims of this drugs case, and they conspired this this trio. Her husband, Jan Wilson's husband in the show, conspired with him and Alex Norton to kill and dismember the the girl who was responsible for selling the drugs. And then there is to silence him, Jan Wilson's husband, to shoot Alex Norton. I know, that's that comes out of nowhere. Yeah, he's he's meant to be on the oil rigs and that thing, you know. And what we see is I mean the first time we see it is a black diamante covered glove shoot Alex Norton. And that's quite a surprise because you still think Oh, he must be the killer. No, he can't be the killer because he's just been shot in the head. And that's an amazing moment, actually. That that, that was so well done. It does. And the, the payoff for that, when the police are going to arrest him, turn up at the butchers, mm. but they've but the police have just been called by the butchers who've just discovered the body. You were quick. Quick. He's in there. Jesus. Who found the body? I did. Must have been here all night. Turned off the boilers when I came in. Kenny, take them outside. And don't you touch anything else in the shop. Well, what have we got here, Peter? Bryce killed his wife. Who killed Bryce? The biscuit is not going to like this. 
Yeah, and then this this leads to the ending of this episode is there is a shooting in the nightclub when they go the husband then goes to try and shoot Ian Glenn's character because he's basically killing the killers. It's the old thing of you know kill the assassins mm. to sort of cover up your involvement. So he goes to kill to kill Ian Glenn's character to shoot him at the nightclub. But why um, do it, it so publicly? Then everyone knows he did it. I think the thing was it was dark there, and it was the one place you'd get a chance to get him because you could get him in a booth somewhere where it's quiet and no yeah. one can see him uh, with a silenced gun, which is not. Should say that's not quite how silencers work, except in detective dramas. But hey, oh, and, and you end up with Jim getting shot, uh, which something that's never referenced again. I was thinking that yes, and, and there's no like ill effects the next week. He gets shot in the back. And nothing happens. And you kind of, I kind of wonder why they put them out in the the order that they did. Because had that been the second episode of the series, you'd be a bit like, oh, oh, is there going to be another? Oh, maybe that's the end of Taggart. So I'm surprised that one didn't go out second because of the ending. Yeah, although there is a gap. For some reason, the scheduling for this and the rest of the season since the Death Call, there's like four months between them. This was this was done in, in February, and then Death Call was shown in mm. September. Five, so it was six months. Shown in September. One was in winter and one was in the autumn schedule. It was really odd, rather than being six episodes back-to-back through the summer, which we've had before. I wonder if that's because it's 86, if that was because of the World Cup. Ah, and they're trying yeah. to fit it in because obviously Tiger so far has been a summer show and obviously ITV schedule and STV schedule in particular in 86 because Scotland qualified for a World Cup uh, was going to be wiped out for a good month or so from Mexico so you'd lose those slots so I think maybe they were trying to fit in where they could but it does create this weird gap where yeah that kind of cliffhanger would have probably been better other way around but it does give another excellent line where as he's lying on the floor Till Gina won't make it You'll make it. To Canada, you dunderhead. Brilliant. That's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. And it, it's also, I mean, this interesting thing with this is because that thread with Jim and Jean and her going to Canada and the holiday and everything, it's the start of two arcs, I suppose you'd use in modern parlance. Well, there is an actual kind of ongoing thing across both stories. So you've got this, and then you've got the other one, which is a really fascinating one, where mm. Kenny Forfer, played by future Taggart writer Stuart Hepburn, who goes also to Rebus and Chris Brittmeyer adaptations and lots of other detective stuff for television, as well as many, many episodes of Taggart, who is like the DS to Jim and, and Peter. So he's kind of like the junior member of the investigation. And there's a kind of character arc that builds with him mm. over this and also with Death Call, where he's been kind of in the background and had some lines and not really done a lot but here his wife has gone missing so he becomes a suspect in all of this is it his wife that's gone missing because he would know obviously how to dispose of a body and then in death call we'll come to that there's there's more things he does that kind of he's kind of the bad cop to the good cop stuff and he's he gets more character development probably than anyone outside of jim in these two stories it is one of those supporting roles that you just think oh he's just there to to fill a hole but actually and we see what will happen in the next series as well that that is a full character development but also it's it's always integrated into the main plot really heavily as well the focus has always been so far on on Jim and Peter and then suddenly and it's not he's not put to the foreground but there's enough stuff that he's involved in the investigation Mm -hmm. he's you know him and 
Peter obviously pals, they go clubbing together, which ends up mm. not well. Later on, they, they're doing lots of activities together. They do karate together later on, which is very funny. <laughs> oh, yes. God, nothing dates on it. a story like that in the 80s. But it's it, it's a kind of, there's a real kind of character development for him, which I, I completely like forgot about his involvement at all. You know, he's in the background of stuff and he gets the odd line here and there. And then suddenly you've got like a six episode character arc, which is real development for him. And it's really good because he, he absolutely, you know, fair play to Stuart. He takes the ball and runs with it. And he is a legitimate, I mean, okay, he's a red herring as well, but he is a legitimate suspect for a little while as well. Oh, your wife's missing. Oh, okay. Well, that's odd. But also, it's, uh, we haven't really mentioned that as well, the fact that they're looking into the potential disappearance of, of different women and that's mm-hmm. why Jan Wilson meets the police because she's reported as, as one as potentially the victim because she's gone away for the weekend. So them trying to figure out who did these body parts actually belong to. And that's what I mean about how well-integrated Kenny's story is in that it's actually a part of potentially the crime. There's real layers in this. The other thing which is is, is, the kind of thread from this is this thing with Jean and Jim. And it was you didn't want me to come in the first place. Only because I thought you'd be left out. I can sightsee. Go around the museums. Okay, we lead separate lives, meet somewhere in the middle. But for somebody that can write a book about sex and disablement, things needn't have been as big a problem as they are. In spite of this cheer, I can still walk out. So Jim is flirting again. And I increasingly, after this, I was kind of like, okay, maybe I didn't remember what happens in the next episode. Right. So... I was like, is this him again doing the flirty thing because it's someone who's a suspect? It's the woman who owns the textile factory where the rug was found, the body was wrapped in, so they're trying to find out if there's a connection with the workforce. And again, it's another kind of red herring. But you're kind of going on, where's where's this going? What's this kind of going up? There is a very flirty relationship between Jim mm-hmm. and Rona Cameron. Rona Cameron, yeah. thank you, yes. But yeah, so that's a kind of really odd thread where you're starting they're starting to do this thing again of Jim and Jean there's definite marital problems there she's gone off to Canada and Jim is not there's a that tension is definitely there in the characters that spills over into his behaviour now I can't remember which episode it was previously but he admits to having had affairs and he's clearly clearly into Rona Cameron in this it's the moment that she reveals I mean he he goes to dinner with her and he keeps making excuses to come and meet her and talk about the case and it's the moment when she actually just reveals she's not interested in men he just he just leaves dinner that's it okay we're done see you later and it's so blunt it's so blunt yeah, it, it's an interesting character thread because I don't remember it from watching these before and I'm coming into it. It's it's opening up bits of Jim that I, I'm not sure I like, to be honest. After the next episode, I don't think anything else comes back from mm. this. I can't remember anything else that alluded to Tiger having any affairs outside of his marriage. Mm. It, it is odd, though. It, it, does, it does make for a really kind of... Un- I I had up until this point always just in my head the head canon was like he was just doing this to get information and then suddenly it's like oh no wait he really is flirting with people and mm-hmm. clearly trying to get his end away. I mean he's meant to be the hero of the show. You couldn't like his character or root for him having his wife in a wheelchair while he's off out having affairs. I don't think they could have got away with that long term anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think the decision probably must have been to drop that. Must have been. 
So wh- where would where would you put this in terms of what we've watched so far? I mean, because I, I, it feels to me like the like I said, the most cohesive episode, and I I genuinely loved it. I mean, came out of this and this is whether it's just that you've got used to it and everyone's kind of found their level of it. It feels it really it doesn't miss a beat at any point for me. Looking at it as a piece of television from the 80s, I think it is terrific in terms of entertainment, but just everything comes together. The first series proper was Taggart, but this is Taggart. This is more of what I remember. Everyone's starting to play off each other much better, but just the story makes a lot more sense. The The red herrings work a lot better. It's just the last few minutes where I just kind of think, what? What? I just I could not have could not have seen the actual outcome of the story, but up until then, I think the way it's been written, but also the directing is terrific. the The use of the butcher shop to allude to things to get you thinking things that aren't happening, but you could I mean you know they're doing it deliberately, and it's gross. It's a gross feeling you have from it. And Alex Norton, I think, is the standout from this mm. simply because. He helps sell that. Uh, his performance is very much giving you a bit of a, a grimy feel and it's uncomfortable viewing, but that's Taggart. That's brilliant Taggart. I mean, his character's quite damaged. Obviously, you know, his wife's yeah. left him under mysterious circumstances. Their daughter's died. There's there's real kind of... He's also got a lot of emotional baggage and that pays into his relationship with his colleagues and stuff, so it makes him an obvious... Like from the like you said, like from the start, it does have that colourful feel of he's he's clearly guilty. And it turns out actually he is guilty, but not for the reasons you think. But it goes in the the, the layering of him as a character and it builds up slowly and it really kind of unpeels around him. There's a phenomenal scene though where you think we all think he's well, we know he's the one getting rid of the body, but he's walking into the butcher shop with a box. And you think, yeah, yeah, that's that is the head. That has to be the head, and that builds so well. I I thought that was I enjoyed that moment because I wasn't sure. You just think, no, no, it can't be. And then no, it turns out to be a cake. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. They all have a laugh. But there was that scene where he's carrying it in, and you just wonder. And that's so well done. Yeah. Oh, and, he, and he's like he's really defensive about what's in the box and stuff as well. And it's like, hopefully, it's going to Paltrow's head. <laughs> See, I wonder, I wonder where they got that from now. There's a lot of Tagger in Seven. There's D- definitely David Fincher quite clearly was a big fan of it. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, he he absolutely carries it, and because his character dies so much out of nowhere as well, it makes mm. that even more shocking. I mean, my last thought on this really is, I I, I look at every episode of Tagger as could this have been the plot to a film on its own. And I think it could have. I mean, there's a lot you would have to take out of it and refine. I think this is, I think this plot in itself would, would be a an interesting film. I think it would work. A very, very dense film noir you could turn out, out to this into really easily, I think, yeah. Just what I do is to test that is watch the STV player repeat and just turn the colour down and see what it looks like in black and white, which I suspect will be moody as hell, except for the nightclub where you won't see anything. But yeah, I think it would work really well as a noir. Yeah, turning the colour down would definitely help your eyes in the nightclub scene. That is <laughs> a lot of bright colours that uh, people are wearing. How, how many people get murdered then in this one? So, so technically there's only two. So you have the victim who's been dismembered. Right. And Alex Norton's character. No, there's a third. Because Ian Glenn gets shot at the end, doesn't he? Does he get killed, though? 
I don't know. I would assume so. Because this and also Death Call, there's some ambiguity about actually whether someone dies or not at the end. And I I didn't know. I thought he got hit, but the same way that Jim got hit. I thought, okay, so two, maybe three. Yeah. Two two and a half. Two and several pieces. And and Taggart as well. And Taggart is a near Takes a bullet. I don't (laughs) Is that the only time he's he's injured in the series? I don't remember anything else. He gets signed off for stress when he goes to the health club later on. And then obviously he dies. But apart from that, yeah, I think that's... It's always Peter or Mike who ends up getting it. And yeah. God, P- Peter's had... You know, he's a dog set on him. He's, he's a dog set on him again coming up pretty soon as well. He's been attacked by Hell's Angels. You know? And in this episode, he gets a black eye that then gets blackened again. That's a running joke, which is actually Punch funny. choice once by his own best pal. Someone, I'd love to know if it was deliberate. If someone like when when Glenn was doing this, or like when Hal Day was directing someone, someone went, "What's the most amount of of pain we can inflict on Arthur Duncan over the course of three episodes?" Again, he's the young sidekick. He's there to he's there to handle it all. But yeah, it's how do you feel about their relationship in this in this episode? Because that will definitely get explored in the next one. Very much so, yeah. I, I like it. There's a definite, it feels like there's a definite kind of thought um, between the two. They feel more, and I don't know if it's because you've got more interaction with, with Forfer there as well, and there's a bit more bouncing around between different characters. So it's not all just constantly needling. And, you know, at one point he gets the, the upper hand on Jim as well, doing his, Peter's doing his usual forensics knowledge. And then diagnoses that Jim's managed to get egg down his tie and gets one up on him. One of those rare occasions that Peter Livingston gets one up on Jim. So there's a definite kind of thaw there. And then Jim gets revenge on him by sticking yes. him down at the dump for three days. <laughs> <laughs> and that that is a horror scene where the the shot of the the head going God, into yes. the, the tip. That is that's horrific. That yeah, I mean we're talking about making this a detective. You could make a phenomenal horror film out of this. Definitely. The only thing we've not referenced is the fantastic line at the start. <laughs> Get your skates on, Peter. We've got a severed leg near the Erskine Bridge. You mean? No. The kind you put mint sauce on. Brilliant. That is one of the best. There are so many quotable lines in this. When uh, Betty and, and the hypnotist arrive and Peter and Jim are standing outside their house. It's a swan. Yes? This is a bit embarrassing for us. He'll explain. Uh, police, we're here primarily to check whether you're still alive. <laughs> just drops him straight in it. It's like, yeah, oh, that's, that's glorious. Okay. Yeah, this this one is so quotable. By mm-hmm. even by like the Glenn's writing, this is just there's so much in here. So as we were covering Knife Edge, I thought this would be the right moment to reach out to Taggart Royalty, Mr. Alex Norton, seeing as he, I would say, arguably, steals Knife Edge. Spoke a bit about what he thought of the episode, how he got involved, a little bit about coming back to Taggart, but found out a few things about his career as well. And it was just a great chat to speak to one of the true true legends of the show. Well, I yes. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact date, uh, but you know these things happen in the usual way that your agent calls you because because somebody calls your agent, and in this case it was Hal Duncan who was the director of that particular episode. And I've known I'd known Hal for for quite a number of years. We'd done various things together, and uh, my agent said uh, called me and said uh, 
Haldane Duncan at STV wants to know if you're interested in doing an episode of Tag Up. And I said, oh, yes, of course I am. You know, so I got put through to Hal and he, he kind of roughly explained the, the plot to me. And I said, well, that's Hal, yes, please. I would love to do that. That that's kind of part sounds right up my street. So that's how it came about. Um, and then like, I don't know, three weeks later or something, I was, I found myself in, in Mary Hill on location. And it was, uh, it's gone now, I think. The place that we filmed in is gone now. But it was quite, it was a, a wee cottage uh, uh, that was up by the railway line. And I, you know, I think probably 19th century cottage. And it had a, the reason they chose that particular location was because it had a ducat, you know, a pigeon house, you know, they're called ducats in, in Glasgow. Um, so they needed that, obviously, for the, for the, for the story. Um, so, yeah, that was my first day was, uh, as George was uh, handling pigeons. Now, I've never, I've never done any pigeon handling in my life. And they had to do a couple of takes because I was meant to pick up a pigeon. And it was like a, a wee Jesse. I was going, oh, oh, it's pecking me. Oh, stop, stop. I had to look as if I'd handled pigeons all my life. So eventually I just had to take a big, deep breath and, you know, get hold of this pigeon and try not to hold it too tightly in case I choked the thing. And you can hear the entirety of the conversation with Alex in the next episode, which we'll put out in a few weeks' time. Okay, so let's move on to Death Call. Again, directed by Haldane Duncan and written by Glenn Chandler. Again, also ran over three episodes. As Ian said, there was a, a break between the broadcast of these two stories. So this one ran from the 2nd of September through to the 16th of September 1986. And guest stars include Anne Kristen, the amazing Alan Cumming. And I think he's amazing in this as well. This is his first TV role, I believe. Uh, also, an early role for Julie Graham as Kathleen Kelly. John Ringham, who is, I think, uh, is brilliant in every scene he's in. Jill Meager and uh, Paul Higgins is Alistair Finn. That's some of what is yet another extraordinary cast. I mean, there's, um, there's so many. I mean, you've got Julie Cadzo as well, who we mentioned earlier, who is just one of those great Scottish character actresses. You've got Ralph Reich, famous face, who this was his first telly, I think, as well. Ah. Reich had been an upholsterer up until his mid-40s and then gave it all up to go and to train to be an actor. And he was in the year above Alan Cumming at uh, drama school. And this is his. This is like one of his first tellies as an actor, as Ralph Reich. And in his mid-40s, he, he starts going into acting. And he's great. And again, one of those guys you would know, he was in Amish Macbeth as TV John. We have reached that point where, it, like we said, it is just, if you, if you are Scottish, you're going to get sucked into doing an episode of Tiger. And if you're like a good character actor or straight out of RSAMD, you know, here's your three episodes. Enjoy. But and when I saw Paul Higgins, it took me a few minutes. I kept going, oh, I know that guy, I know that yeah. guy. Of course he's in the thick of it. Yeah. He is he is alongside um Capaldi, he is the thick of it, actually. He's tremendous throughout that show. Yeah, J- Jamie McDonald in it, just the, the force of, of venom, venomous nature. <laughs> There's just something about, I mean, the, the the Scottish characters in the thick of it are clearly there to be the bullies and, and swear their heads off. But uh, those two actors are just, they make it 
they make it a glorious show. Yeah. The, the, um, the way the Iron Ritchie has written them and the way they deliver those lines, that is why the thick of it is wonderful. Totally. He, he's, he's in everything at the moment as well, though. He's, mm. he's, I mean, he's obviously famous for that, but he's in um, Slow Horses at the moment on Apple TV with, with Gary Oldman. Um, he's in Karen Gillan's film, um, oh. the, her directorial film, uh, The Party's Just Starting, playing our dad, um, which is brilliant as well. I thoroughly recommend that if you haven't seen that. Yeah, I mean, it's just an insane cast again when we get this. And as we said at the start, three three debuts effectively with with Jilly Graham, uh, Paul Higgins, and, and, and Alan Cumming, especially um, making a real impact. Yeah, I, I I think Alan Cumming hits the ground running. If this is his first, he he is tremendous, but he is also very much like that for for a long time in his career. But he's so likable, so likable. It's really fascinating seeing how like how young he is at this. I mean, he's only I think twenty or twenty one right. around then, and did like a year out of drama school. And yeah, it's it's like he is just a force of nature in it in terms of like character and charisma and stuff. You can see why he became such a big star really quickly. And it's easy for us to talk in retrospect, but I mean, especially he and Joey Graham. I wonder. If they were already tipped for big things, looking at it, it seems a no-brainer. Uh, they are so good in this, and I think I mean Julie Graham has to to play Irish as well, and she's excellent. I I, I think I mean together they're very good, but they're seen separately. They really hold their own against actors who have been around for a lot mm. longer, and they're they are just both so fantastic throughout. Yeah, totally. Uh, what did you think of her accent? I'm, I'm going to be kind of charitable that she comes and goes. Yes, it comes and goes. What did I tell you? The private things, family things. Where from? Home. Seems you can't get away from police searches. There's times it's really good. There's times it's like, yeah. but it's a big ask asking someone to do a, a Northern Ireland accent anyway, especially with the way they sort of take it. And that's the thing I'm going to mention in the last last sort of segment is that it's it, that her and Alan Cummings' character. It's the first time Taggart's ever addressed the whole Catholic Protestant thing mm. in Glasgow, which is really interesting given it's such a, especially in the eighties, such a defining part of it. And they make her character kind of, she's you know she's an Irish Catholic, she's also got nationalist sympathies, and Alan Cumming's character's family are all very staunch. But does she need to be Irish? She probably didn't need to be. Probably not, but I think we may, you know, it, it adds an extra thing because there's that, mm. you know, I, I don't want to say the connotations of terrorism, but, you know, they are looking oh, at, you know, yeah. the, the fact that people have been killed and she has obviously Irish sympathies and there's like a, a question. It's, it's set up in the background as a, is this an IRA thing? Yeah. And it's it, it, it's not, again, it's another red herring, but it gives it that extra nudge. But it's fascinating to see, it's, it's done with a very light touch, but it is mm-hmm. something that, you know, it was such a thing of life, and thankfully less so these days, but still prevalent in some sort of four times a year anyway. Um, yeah, it was very prevalent in the early 80s. I, I, I remember it so well. But I hadn't thought of that, so I think you're right. Right, so the synopsis, because we haven't done that yet. <laughs> DCI Taggart and DS Livingston are called in to investigate the macabre killing of a wife of a wealthy landowner who is found strangled and weighed down with luggage in a reservoir. Her husband was last seen preparing to go to Switzerland with a large sum of money in a holdout, but as the case is open and shut, as DCI Taggart suspects. They then start investigating missing successful business couples who have withdrawn large sums from the bank before being found drugged. And strangled. 
So what did you think of this episode, Stephen? I think this is the, in terms of the plot, I think this one really is the most, it holds its own really well. I think throughout, even at the very end, where it does once again, oh, I didn't see that coming until perhaps the last episode. I think it really works. I think when you look back on it all, it all makes sense. And it's really clever once again, but the red herrings are actually good fun as well. Again, I would challenge anyone to have guessed who done it, but I think it is more guessable than the last one. See, I, I, I didn't get it at all. Even up until actually halfway through mm. the reveal, I was like, no. Oh, halfway through the reveal, what did you think she was doing? It wasn't until she's like literally like serving the, the couple at the end the drugged champagne. I was like, whoa, wait, it's hot. I got completely thrown by it. So this is, I, I don't remember this in any of the previous episodes, but there was definitely the moment where you find out, they find out the money Kathleen has given to Jamie earlier when he's asked her for money. And you find out that this money has come from the the lodgings that's i think the moment you go ah because that was definitely when i went ah it is but i thought the setup was it was the creepy guy that's been hitting on her because the, she obviously he knows she knows he's got money and then it cuts away as he goes out and the, obviously the implication is you're meant to think she's gone and robbed him and then it's like oh no she when she says she got it from the, the owner of the hotel that's kind of like wait and I, even then i was still going so did the owner of the hotel get it from the dodgy bloke and it's not until she's serving the champagne. I was like, oh, right. So she's the, it was her money. I never considered him a, a suspect, but you're right. Because she looks to his room at one point as though, ah, that's where you'll get the money. But I, I never considered him a, a potential suspect at any point, really. The fact that he comes in and he's he sleezing on her in the chip shop was the point where I started thinking, is this building up to him? And it just felt like he was being positioned into something a bit more. And then it goes again. It just completely takes a left turn. It's, it's brilliantly and there's a lot again there's lots of little things like with with Knife Edge there's lots of little things in the dialogue that in episode one that set up where it's coming but it is a real slow burn for me in terms of where it's going uh, yeah I, th- I think I can see that did you did you enjoy it yourself what did how did, how did you respond to, to the plot I absolutely loved it I, I, it it does something really interesting Glenn's done a lot with the, the, the five stories we've looked at so far there's still that thing of class in there you've obviously got the golf club and posh wealthy folk and their lives and then you've got the kind of working class aspects of glasgow and their lives and how the two are kind of colliding which makes sense in the obviously the area that taggart is supposed to be set is you know you've got mary hill and you've got the west end that do kind of rub against each other a little bit but it's really interesting this one is starting to go into because you've obviously got the catholic person stuff and it's getting played under there you've got money against people without money students you know unemployed teenagers it's a really interesting setup in terms of the social dynamics and that really that really fascinated me i really loved that and there i mean there's another fantastic line uh for taggart where livingston turns up he's slept in because he's had a school reunion the night before he's late and everyone's looking at their watch and we've come on here we've got we've got a crane to solve can you smell a brewery well there i should have you breathalyzed it's not beer I was on liqueurs all night. You sure it's a boys' school you went to? And oh, I laughed out loud so much at that. That that is quintessential uh, one line. But it's absolutely the dynamic between them is still there. They they still tease each other in terms of their backgrounds, and that again that's explored really well in this episode later on. Yeah, and that Peter's relationship with 
Jim, I mean, literally is explored in this. Um, yeah. In the kind of sloppy second sense of the word. It's really. <laughs> I wouldn't have gone there. You've gone there. I wouldn't have gone there. Oh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> to, to explain then, so Helen Mendoza is a, a, a solicitor who almost got engaged to DS Livingston, but she left him when he became a policeman. And they bump into each other because she is the lawyer of the first couple who have been, well, they've been murdered. So she was there when Alan Cummings' character, who has come to their house to bring back a bag that um, the wife has left in the chemist or the pharmacy he works in. So that is how he becomes the, the key suspect in, uh, in their murder. But Helen Mendoza is there and she swears that he must be innocent because, well, she offered him a lift and he nearly went uh, home uh, or took the lift, but actually he remained to stay and uh, he was the last person to see them alive. Because she has that connection, she approaches the police and she ends up getting to know both Taggart and Livingston and that starts an affair again between Livingston and, and herself. But that then ends quite acrimoniously and, well, I don't even know how to explain what happens next. Well, I mean, let's be blunt about it. She sleeps with the gym. And this is what I was talking about earlier. I, I didn't remember this. And it, it really... And then you had said when we did kill her that Jim has an affair. And I, I didn't remember that. And I, I couldn't... Well, we get to that. And when that, when you get the payoff of that... Fancy seeing you here. I suppose you're going to tell me off as well. Helen, you shouldn't even have been in there. Then that makes a hat trick of things I shouldn't have done. What did Helen mean? Quite a hat trick of things she shouldn't have done. Peter, it's solicitor's jargon. Don't even try and understand it. Never. Peter sort of like trying to process that, understandably a little, little thrown and confused to say the least, and and slightly disbelieving, I think, at that point as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a moment where he kind of tells him, uh, tells Livingston himself. There's about yeah. a double entendre where he tells him, "Oh, I was out for for cocktails last night," and he and he says, "I could get a taste for that," and I think that's him kind of alluding to to yeah. something's happened there, but it just goes over Livingston's head because he just would never believe it. I remember when I first saw this episode a long time ago just not liking that part of the character development it just felt this has gone too far I watched it again recently it was okay but better with it but I just yeah I, I didn't sit well I mean in sequence it makes sense and that you've got as we said Jim has been flirting with various women over the course of the last five stories and there's clearly tension between him and Jean and in that context it makes sense that this is kind of the ultimate payoff of that is that he does end up effectively you know having a, a one night stand with someone and she's doing it for revenge i think yes think she is yeah she's i think yeah. there's a bit of spite from her which is quite funny i mean of all the revenge yeah. shags you could have i don't think jim taggart would have been high on that list but it adds an extra thing to the the, the character because there is that there's a kind of more of a needle going on in this story between jim and peter than there has been like the last one there's a real mm. i don't know if it's like a sense of i don't know if it's a sense of hierarchy or whatever peter and Kenny Forfer are, are kind of working the case together a lot more. And that has consequences when Kenny discovers the body of the husband of the, the German wife, his victim, the thing that Kevin killed. His, the, the husband is found in a barn on a property they're supposed to have searched. And he says something about uh, the boy, which we'll get into what that means in a second, but the, the, the thing you're meant to think is it's Alan Cumming. And 
Kenny is so determined to prove his homecoming that he starts bending the rules in a big way and effectively destroying evidence and planting evidence. And Peter's kind of dragged into that, which is really... And you get this real sense because Jim doesn't believe it's him. He doesn't believe it's Alan Cummings' character. And, the, and Peter and Kenny are resolute that it is. They absolutely believe it is. And you end up with this kind of really quite needly dynamic between them. What do you make of the... I, I, is it a famous scene? Maybe it's Taggart famous scene. But the scene where Alan, Alan Cumming is chased through uh, the back alleys of the West End and then ends up in the very edge of of the river and ultimately his character falls in. But what did you make of, of that? Because I thought it was it was it was really quite quite wonderful. Yeah. I thought it was very, very well done. Yeah, it is. And direction is really good. And it's also really clear as well, where you've got mm. you know, he's meeting yeah, Kathleen and then the cops are converging. You've got a real sense. It's very easy with those kind of chases to get lost in terms of the geography. Nowadays, obviously, I mean, the, the, that kind of action stuff gets edited to ribbons, and it's absolutely on. I mean, the famous one is the Liam Neeson in, is it Taken 2? Where it's a scene of him jumping a fence that has 30-odd cuts within it. And it's like a five-second clip of him, like, jumping over a fence onto the other side, and just like, click, 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 all the way. And you are completely lost and seasick. And obviously, you know, editing techniques have changed and directions have changed. But with this, the, the chase, you know what's happening. That must have been, I mean, for the for the show at the time, that must have been a really big stunt mm. to have. I presume the stuntman did it, go over the side and actually to see that. Was, was yeah, it. straight off the bridge into the Kelvin as well. Yeah. What Kenny is doing as well is they're so convinced that it's him, but they can't get him because ultimately they're wrong. So he takes um, a jumper from Alan Cumming and while Livingston is off getting a coffee or a cigarette outside the car, uh, what happens is he plants evidence by rubbing it against, I think it's, I'm not sure what he rubs it against exactly, but he rubs the jumper it's, against something to get the fibres onto the jumper. Yeah, it's, it's the, the bedspread. There's there's, they're questioning whether or not the couple were strangled on the bed. because right, yes. Dr Andrews says there's a hard surface, but they're thinking it might be the bed because um, they've got a big four-poster. Mm. And the bed had been made afterwards. So they think maybe he made it after he strangled him. But to put they do is they rub the, the fibres off his jumper onto, or, or Kenny does, onto the bedspread. So that there's like, oh, there's 30 fibres in there. It's quite clearly him. They couldn't have got their bags. And how, how that all falls apart is really, really clever writing as well. And that turns out to be his father's jumper. And his dad just bought it the day before. And he's still got the receipt. So there's no doubt about it. And Kenny is absolutely bang to rights. So uh, but even then he tries to deny that the father gave him the receipt. That uh, he just tries to get out of it. Until and I think actually we can see Mark McManus's best moment in the show so far, where he he just shouts something. Before you go, would you mind giving me that receipt, Mister McCormack gave you at the hospital? What receipt? I called in to see him on the way back. He gave you a receipt that proves he bought the jumper the day before, and that means Jamie couldn't yeah. possibly have been wearing it. I don't have it. Why? Look, I, I can explain. Explain, you'll do better than explain. It was the only way. I thought he'd done it. Look, we all break the rules. Oh, some of the rules. But you don't rig evidence on an investigation. Not on my investigation, especially not on my investigation. You give everybody in here a bad name. Get out of the building. Well, come on, Jim, get out of the 
I think the way that Mark McManus just displays that fury is terrific. What a fantastic moment uh, for the character, yeah. but he really shows his gravitas uh, among the entire department as well, because everyone looks at him. Nobody, nobody questions him. And McVitie tells Kenny, go. And it's uh, that is a terrific moment. We talked about, obviously, Kenny's art. By the end of this six episodes, he's lost his job, he's lost his wife, he's lost his, his career, his respect, and his friends. And it's kind of this arc of him. And I almost feel slightly sorry for him because he's doing it in this episode. I mean, what he's doing is, is the wrong thing, but he's doing it with the right convictions. He believes that, you know, Alan Cummings' character is, is the, the villain. And he has this guilt of he missed the body the first time round. Yeah. Had he got into the barn earlier, he might have saved the guy's life. And that would, you know, he's, he's got this weighing on his conscience. And he's clearly someone who is struggling mentally at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, effectively a breakdown. It's quite interesting sort of dynamic they take it with. It's not like he's not doing it out of bribery or corruption or anything like that. He's doing it for what he thinks are the right reasons. It's just that the right reasons are absolutely 100% wrong. And, and I was saying this earlier, it's an element to the show that doesn't need to be there, but the fact that it is and it's layered into these stories so, so neatly is just testament to the writing, but also the, the whole production that they've gone with this extra depth. And his character, I think he's in the next story as well, but I can't remember. I mean, you would think he comes back and gets redemption. I don't know if he does. I can't. It doesn't. Taggart no longer is a show you can trust to do what you think morally other shows would do. So in terms of the actual kind of the murder plot, what do you think of this one? Because it is, this is a, by, even by the, the standards of what we've gone through so far, this is an insanely high body count by the end of this. I, I'll, I'll tell you what I think I got the score count to. I think there was six, five off screen and potentially one other, but we're not sure about that one. And we can talk about that later, but that is definitely the highest we've had. And when I was watching it, I kept thinking this this could be a good story. This would be a book. There was a lot. If this was a novel, I would definitely I could see this being being written really well. Uh, there was a lot of layers to it, but also the actual solution I think works very well. There's there's elements to it that come out later on that I think you could guess guess who the killer is, but it would still be a bit of a leap. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think this one ties together the best of them all so far in my opinion but that's simply because I think I got the killer I've got seven as the body count for this does that include possibly the- possibly six maybe but uh, possibly seven so there's the three couples okay one of which is questionable whether both of the final couple whether both yes. of them are dead so that's the questionable one but there's also the girl who was killed first off yes. right it's the very start of this who is the broker for the, the child adoptions. Because this is all to do, we haven't actually mentioned the, the plot yet, this is all to do with child adoption um, for childless couples and a scam that's being run for child adoption that ends up with lots and lots of, of very rich couples being murdered for their attempts to buy children. And this is one where the title really does give that away. Because if you're thinking, well, why is it called Death Call? Well, we see these couples waiting for phone calls and that's what I think, actually, when you think from that perspective, you can get to the end uh, a bit quicker. So I think the title ties into that quite well and gives and gives another bit of a, a footing to try and to try and guess who the killer is. But it's a lot again with all the red herrings. It's a really nicely sort of layered set of red herrings. There's so, like we said, there's this class strand. You've got a couple who are killed at the start 
are unpopular. Mm. They own a golf club, which they're going to shut down and turn into a private members club. Their money, they've upset the golf community, which obviously you never upset because they're all weird. But that comes into the brilliant performance that you mentioned at the start of this from John Ringham, who is phenomenal. Such a great character actor, anyway, but absolutely just steals everything he's in. I'm looking for Mr. Latham Brown. I'm Latham Brown. But I'm afraid I'm just leaving. Uh, Chief Inspector Tiger at Maryhill. I know where you're from. I play golf regularly with your superior. Can we talk about Eva Russell? No, I only met her once. Where was that? Here, strangely. He just brought her back from Germany. She came in here and I told her that we didn't serve women. But she was the owner's wife. He leases us the land... We make the rules. He knew that as well as anybody. Just such a partial dick. And a character actor you know you've seen in a hundred other mm. things. Another one. What I was thinking as well was talking about the class issue. There was a moment where when Alan Cumming turns up at their house and he asks, where, where is it that this couple lives? And he's so disappointed when he actually sees the place, because he's expecting this this palace, and actually it's, it's a flat, really. It's a, it's it's not. So that shows as well that the perceptions aren't quite there, because he's obviously not from that sort of background. And within that, all the other couples were drugged. So the and the drugs that were used initially seemed to be drugs that were missing from Ralph Ryuk's pharmacy where Uncoming worked. So that's what sets up the... Uh, he's constantly seen as the, the the suspect, until it turns out it's just an administrative error, which is a Really, again, it just builds that thing of Kenny, just like he ignores that fact. Mm -hmm. I thought, I thought it would be his boss. I thought it was. I thought the mm -hmm. chemist was involved somehow until they actually come back and say, "Oh no, he's actually found uh, the missing drugs." But I did think that was part of the solution at one point. And the payoff is that Julie Graham's character, who is obviously Uncoming's character girlfriend, is working at the hotel where mm -hmm. the brokerage takes place. And where all the murders happen. So actually, he's really not got anything to do. He's just unlucky. But she's kind of core to all of it in the end. It does seem to be how Taggart works, though. People are unlucky, they get involved <laughs> in the crime, and then it's their other half that's actually behind it or something <laughs> like that. That's, that's twice that has happened. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely part of it. But hey, there's got to be small worlds for it to be a whodunner. But the, the, the character, the sleazy man who hangs around the hotel, I just, it just kept popping in and out. I never saw a character there for it. It just wouldn't have worked. Had it been him, you'd have gone, oh man, what? I know, but it's a, it's a red herring and it's there to, to, to hook you. It, it hooked me. I won't lie, it hooked me. There's some nice stuff in that, just because it's, there's so much going on around everything and like the setup for it. And again, like I said, there's lots of stuff in the dialogue that kind of drives you in the right direction if you really pay attention. But. It's, there's enough kind of red hair shadow about, particularly because of the golf club stuff, which is McVitie's golf club, which is why he takes an active interest in this case, far more hands-on than he, he is before. That does go away quite quickly, though. I mean, it's around for the first half, and then you get yeah. another scene later on where there's a bit of a payoff, but there's not much. Yeah, once once the, like, the, they've established there's not actual threat to the golf club, or the, the, the golf club owner's brother who's an artist who would inherit all the money and yeah. becomes like a red herring suspect as well that that's a kind of nice pair of like he's like oh no no just, just solve the case now i don't care if it's not gonna affect the golf club it's fine you can you can deal with it you know <laughs> i've had my bit but he's like he's like right on the investigating scene and everything at the start of it because of the connection it's really kind of i like the idea that well we mentioned that like when, when his first appearance he's very much kind of golf club and Masonic handshake is quite clearly when it's his private interests that are impacted by investigation by god he's going to turn up 
I don't believe that could be true of the police. Self-interest in the police force? It's never been heard of. So that's a, that's a ridiculous thing to try and allude. So, and so to try and explain what happens at the end, because I think that will take a bit of explaining. The reason why we're not sure... So the couple that we've seen waiting for the phone call throughout probably the second half um, eventually get the death call. And they go to where they have to pay for the child and they go to the hotel, which is closed for the weekend, which is probably the most significant thing that the creepy guy says is it's strange that she's closed this place and as a result he's left and found somewhere else. That's probably the most significant contribution he makes. Um, So they've gone and they meet the owner and they have the meeting and she explains and they ask can we speak to the mother and she says oh no uh, and fobs them off uh, she she offers them champagne to celebrate the deal being done and she laces the champagne and she hands one to the uh, to the wife and then goes to hand one to the husband who says no thank you he doesn't drink which causes her a conundrum because the wife started to drink the lace champagne. She's going to f- fall unconscious, but the husband won't drink anything. So she waits for the wife to fall asleep. The husband starts making the point that it's been half an hour. You said it'd be 15 minutes before this would all be finalised. And he notices his wife has fallen unconscious. He tries to wake her up and she stabs him. And Kristen, who is the, the hotel owner, and we think he's dead. And then... What is a really bleak moment? She pulls the wife onto the floor, takes the husband's tie off him, and we see her actually strangle the wife. Well, she's yeah. So that's been her mo is that she strangled people with ties throughout yeah. the, the story. That's how she's been she's getting the leverage because she's too small to strangle like a large man. Yeah. So she's been using the tie for it and use it in the wife. But the police arrive and it's and, and they arrive as she's kind of like reacting afterwards and it's it's never really clear if she's actually killed the, the this woman or not so that's why i've got it as six or seven depending on whether she is dead or not we kind of need a, we kind of need to go to var for this i think but is the husband dead because what alerts them to break down the door of the room is they hear oh a man go oh and that's that i think it was to the husband is still alive but yeah there's no confirmation either way is there the, the Tiger murder totalizer at the moment, which before this episode stood at 10, if you include Knife Edge, is possibly somewhere between 15 and 17 now. We'd, we kind of need an official ruling on where, where the bodies are. <laughs> so, like I said, we go to VAR and actually get a, an official referee's ruling on, on whether or not she has actually murdered these two people as well, just for clarity. So it's somewhere between 15 and 17 are dead so far, but we're not 100% sure. To be fair, that's still only after five stories. There's at least fifteen people dead. Mm. Uh, that's Tiger. <laughs> that is the show we're talking about. Knowing what's to come, it only gets better. What a great show that's yeah. going to be! It only gets better from this. It's a really high bar when you consider this is this is effectively only two series in. If you take the pilot out, and you've already you know the show is is created this level of of mythos and the quality is so high already straight out of the gate killer gave them time to just kind of get find their feet and really the show has hit the ground 
since then with with a sort of a, a solid run. But these two, there's a real confidence in both stories. I don't know if that's with, with Haldane's direction as well, because this is his first two stories. He'd been producer on Murder and Season, I think, but he was he was directing in these two. And it does have a slightly different visual sensibility. There's a bit more steady cam in there, but the nightclub stuff. There's there's a bit more kind of a dynamic feel to some of the, the direction. Yeah, it's a real sense of confidence. The show knows what it's doing and the writing really reflects that. The performances absolutely reflect that. And then just everything kind of, the production value just kind of comes together and it's a really solid, great two episodes of of, of horrendous murder. Would recommend just finish reading it on his book that he did with his son Michael, which is really good about his entire career. It's, it's quite short, but it's a really sort of interesting set of anecdotes. And there's a, a, a brilliantly, and this is um, something that we meant to, I meant to mention in the last episode, the other side of why in a sec. Um, there's a Flickr gallery, and I'll put a link in the show notes to, to the book in the Flickr gallery of like behind the scenes photos that, uh, that were taken from these productions, including a lot from these two stories. Mm. But also there's one from Murder in Season with a very weird cameo in the back of a shot, which I didn't realise until I was reading the caption on this, where the fire chief on the boat, when they discover the body, is Connery. What? Not not Sean, his brother Neil uh-huh. is the fire chief in that scene. He's only got, I think he's got a couple of lines of dialogue from memory, but he was the, the on the, you can see him in all the photographs. Yeah, Neil Connery, occasional actor in uh-huh. one of the weirdest films ever made in OK Connery <laughs> and uh, brother of Tam. You know, he pops up in, in Tiger. It's like a background role. And then Sean Connery's daughter turns up in a future episode. He must so Shane Big Tam couldn't be convinced to come and do a, an episode, really. <laughs> it's all about the money. I'm sure they couldn't have afforded them. <laughs> so thank you for listening to No Mean City. On the next episode, we'll be looking at Series 3, which is The Killing Philosophy and Funeral Rites, as well as the first Christmas special, yes, Taggart had a Christmas special, Cold Blood. So you can follow us on Twitter at No Means City Pod and find this podcast to follow on any platform where you get your podcasts. So thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>